And this, the bag had a zipper. So I opened the zipper, unzipped the bag, looked inside, it's full of cash. And he says, run. So I zip it back and we start running. Like we were running for probably, I don't know, five minutes at least. Okay. Turning right, left, right, left, just get the hell out of there. Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Whoa, Rick, check this guy out. He's really, he's got a lot going on for him. Silence, Morty. Hi everybody, this is Dr. David Proden from down here in the North Star Recording Studio, where tomorrow it will be 100 degrees. Now, the hottest day of the year, it does warm up down here in the studio, but it will get nowhere near triple digits. So, in today's podcast, a special guest um, coming to us from eastern side of the world. You know, we've got the time zones going on, um, Australia. Nikolai Razuvayu. Correct. Hey. Wow. All right. So, so Nikolai, he grew up in um, North Caucasus. Is that right? Caucasus. Caucasus. Okay, I'll do it. Nikolai grew up in North Caucasus, part of the former Soviet Union, where he was singled out as a future cycling champion and Olympic gold medalist. In 1984, he won gold at the Junior World Olympics. Nikolai pursued gold medals for two decades behind the Iron Curtain. But the real lure of the sport wasn't national glory. He wanted to invo- avoid national service and access travel to the West and all the benefits that entailed. Nikolai has recently returned to road racing in Australia, where he, was, he also coaches other cyclists. And he works for a company that's involved in clinical trials for people experiencing uh, depression or cognitive decline. So fascinating. He was a, a cyclist uh, with the Soviet Union uh, at the time of Chernobyl. And he was biking in Kiev, which is 62 miles or 100 kilometers from Chernobyl. So he's, he's going to tell us about that. Uh, just absolutely fascinating story. And when I initially uh, approached him, I, I saw him on the Masculine Geek podcast, and I started to read his material. And I thought this show was going to talk, you know, be be centered about this awesome experience of driving or, or biking past uh, buses that were lead covered um, in Kiev, right outside of, of of Chernobyl. You know, I thought that's where this discussion would go. But then I learned so much more. It was at the time of Perestroika. Uh, so much opening up in in the Soviet Union, so much information, the cascade of information. That's what we're going to talk about today. R- rapidly processing a cascade of information, trying to make sense of it all. So it, it, this is going to be a really good show. A few things. A shout out to 405 Media in Los Angeles, California, for airing the show 2 p.m. PST daily, the 405media.com. Um, check out my work at Safety PhD. 
com and in the back here you can you can see it and we'll put it up but it is the book school of airs back there over there um you can check that out too so today uh nikolai first of all how are you i'm very good thank you i have no complaints <laughs> all good great great stuff um so hey so you were you were biking now first of all i love to bike so so we have this connection also you you post on on uh, you know Twitter photos when you're out uh, biking, so many stories of, of you out biking. But uh, your your biking was it a day or two days after the Chernobyl uh, nuclear disaster, which was April 26th, 1986. So so let's let's go back to that time. Where were you, and and tell me what was going on in your world. Yeah, well, let me start with a bit of a correction, you know, about the Olympic Games. Uh, I did not did not win the Olympic Games. It was a world championship, junior world championship, and it's sort of normal for uh, non-athletes to sort of confuse the two, but these are two different things. So not Olympic Games, world championship. World championship. Uh, I don't want to be accused of, uh, you know, uh, grabbing uh, titles that uh, I did not win. Um, yeah, I... I Probably, again, just to start that conversation about Chernobyl, I need to probably give you some background about why we were there in the first place. Now, uh, my team that I used to race for was called Titan, or Titan in English, I guess. Uh, it was based in Kiev itself. Uh, so we were in and out of Kiev all the time because it's our base. Uh, Kyiv is obviously the capital of Ukraine. Uh, I was not originally from Ukraine. I was um, uh, headhunted, I guess, for this team when I was... Oh, here's a map. Yep. Is Ukraine, yeah, that's red spot. It's Kyiv. But originally, I'm from, as I said, from North Caucasus. If you keep going south, southwest to the black... Oh, yeah, southeast, sorry to the Black Sea and going east and more east toward Georgia. No, the other way. Right over here, huh? Toward Turkey, yeah. So if you go a little bit, zoom in on this region called Caucasus, no, uh, east, east, east. If you go east, yeah, a bit more east. So uh, now you can see this whole region is called where the green is, it's Caucasus. It's a massive mountains much higher than the Alps. Okay. And if you keep going south, a bit south, you will see Georgia. And north of Georgia, you will see a city called Nalchik, just going 90 degrees up. Yep. Right here. Yep. I think this this is it, Nalchik. Yeah. I can't see without my glasses. So that's where I'm originally from. So it's neighboring well-known places like Chechnya. So if you go a little bit more east, Grozny, maybe a couple of inches. Yeah, you will see yep. we are in the neighboring uh, Chechnya. On the south is Georgia. If you keep going south, it's Armenia, Azerbaijan, and then Turkey. Uh, further east is Caspian Sea, Iran, and all of those things. So that's um, very close to a hotspot, I guess, of okay. uh, geopolitics. But uh, I was picked by this team from Kiev uh, when I was 17, and therefore 
for the rest of my cycling career, I was based in Kiev. Now, uh, back to 86. Uh, in 86, Kiev was supposed to host uh, the peace race. The peace race was what Tour de France is today for the professionals. So it was the biggest race. It was the most important race uh, for amateurs, uh, a stage race. Uh, but unlike Tour de France, uh, peace race was also uh, a political event. It was uh, started right after the Second World War, and obviously the name implies a political uh, angle to it. So a peace race was to celebrate the peace, you know, the uh, victory over Nazi Germany. And the race was traditionally from day one up until 1985 held between three countries, uh, Poland, uh, Czechoslovakia, and East uh, Germany. So they would rotate the starts. It, one year it would start in Berlin, then next year it would start in Prague, next year it would start in Warsaw. But in 85, to celebrate the uh, 40th anniversary of the great, great victory over the Nazi Germany, they decided to start the race in Moscow. And again, if you think about it, if you start in Moscow and finish in Berlin, which was the idea, sure, it has a lot of uh, sort of um, other ideas behind it. You know, we start in Moscow and we finish in Berlin. Um, so that was the first time they uh, introduced something new. You know, it was for 30 plus years held in uh, Eastern Europe. And all of a sudden, they decided to start that race in Moscow. But in 86, I guess, to keep going with this novel idea, they decided to start the race in Kiev. And the peace race was traditionally uh, started in May, early May, like 2nd of May, 3rd of May, whatever, 6th of May, something like that. Okay. So it was scheduled to start in Kiev in early May. And... Uh, and of April 26th of April, Chernobyl blows up. Yeah. And we arrive in Kiev a day or two after the accident happened. So we were racing in uh, Uzbekistan at the time and uh, came to Kiev to race uh, kind of a rehearsal day. Just like in Moscow, they had a rehearsal. And in Kiev, they organized a race which would race all the stages in Kiev. So exactly the same format exactly the same race, except uh, the participants would be all from the Soviet Union. Okay. So that's why we were in Kiev in the first place. So we landed in Kiev, uh, I don't remember, 27 or 28, day or two after the Chernobyl. At the time of landing, like this is two days at least, yeah. Yeah. after the accident, we absolutely had no idea what happened. That's and amazing. nobody, yeah, nobody in the country, except obviously the people who were supposed to know, they knew, but the rest of the country and people, I guess, who were near the Chernobyl, who I guess by this time, some of them or most of them have been already evacuated because this thing was just a disaster, a big disaster. We had absolutely no idea. So as we're driving from the airport, we had our team bus. As we're driving from the airport to the base, uh, our driver starts talking about, hey guys, uh, have you heard what happened in Chernobyl? And we were obviously, a lot of us were not even from Ukraine. So it's like an international team, quote unquote. So a lot of guys were from Russia. Uh, 
some of some of them of course were from Ukraine uh, so we didn't know much of a geography of I mean you know the major things but the rest of it is like what is Chernobyl nobody heard about it even right. though it, it's very close to Kiev so he goes have you heard about the accident that happened in Chernobyl and obviously we're going like Chernobyl why what, what are you talking about so he starts explaining to us that he heard a rumor that a nuclear station blew up in Chernobyl. We didn't even know there was a, a nuclear power station. Yeah. And uh, as we're driving, you know, he tells us this, and we go, oh, okay, whatever, you know, it's who cares? You know, we have a race to do. And and that's how we arrived in Kiev without even knowing what happened. And as you've mentioned, Kiev was only 100 kilometers away from Chernobyl. And this is the second or third day of the uh, accident, so this thing is blowing up like there's no tomorrow. Yeah. And yet we have absolutely no idea. So everything from that point on went as normal. Uh, we were not officially told by anybody. Uh, the race was scheduled as usual, and it started a couple of days later, and we started racing. <laughs> that's, that's so you're the, you're 20 years old at the time, right? You're you're 20 yeah, years old. Yeah. I was and 20 years old. Uh, I was a world champion at this time. Uh, sort of one of the most promising cyclists in the peloton, young cyclists in the peloton. So I had a, a big future ahead of me. Um, yeah, so that was that was how we arrived in Kiev. <laughs> and and to put a, a context on on to biking, right? Um, if biking wouldn't have been your, the path, right? If, if you wouldn't have worked as hard, been as talented, gone into biking, you, you would have been in the military service. And at that time, um, the Soviet Union was actively fighting in Afghanistan. So there's a, there was a high probability you could have been uh, fighting in Afghanistan, right? That, so that was yeah, uh, yeah. One of the, yeah, one of the motivating factors of... I guess my success was to avoid the service in the Soviet army. Now, obviously it was compulsory for all males 18. Right. Once you turn 18, you have no choice but to go for two years in the army. Except at the time, the only way to escape it is to go and study at a university where they had a military faculty. So you could do your service during your study. So it was not really an army, it was just theory and a bit of practice, but uh, as you do university for four years, it was uh, reckoned to you as service in the army. So that was the one escape. But when I was close to 18, they, I think in 84, 85, they can cancel this escape route because the war in Afghanistan was escalating and they needed soldiers, and they basically canceled this little uh, loophole. So everybody had to go to serve in the army. And um, for me, like um, I, you, you kind of grow up, and you, as you a kid, you don't really care. You know, you know, you will go in the army. Right. And uh, while you're a kid, obviously you have this. Um, Reminding ideas about the army and all of that, but as you become a bit older, 16, 17, you start hearing stories what the army is, and the Soviet army at the time was not much different to a prison. So you basically were preparing yourself to go to a prison. 
Sure. Uh, for nothing, you know, like it's not even a punishment. Uh, there was uh, a lot of bullying going on, a lot of abuse, uh, a lot of nonsense going on. Obviously, uh, you were suppressed by the military discipline and all of that. So it actually, it's not scared me, but I did not want to go. And so when I started cycling soon after uh, talking with my coach and discussing my future, I learned that if I do well, uh, I can escape this route. Like in, for, if you are a high level athlete, you can still go to the army uh, on paper, but you can still keep racing. Right. So you will be enlisted, but you will not be touched. You can still race and continue your career. So I don't want to go into mechanics of it, but that was yeah. how the system was set up. Obviously, everyone understood if you go to the army for two years, your career is finished. So they allowed athletes to uh, serve in the army without actually serving in the army. So that was a f massive um, incentive for me to uh, be serious about my cycling career. And this is what exactly happened. In When I was 17, I was um, headhunted by Titan, by Titan. They invited me to a team. It was a professional team. I was paid a salary. But also they had a system that are very well oiled system where you would not go to the army, we would still be enlisted, which is what happened to me. We went to a military uh, uh, base where we swore an allegiance to the Soviet Union uh, as part of the process of enlisting into the army. And then after giving this uh, uh, sort of allegiance, we left. Usually you would stay for a couple of weeks, but we left. And that's how my uh, service in the Soviet army started. So I actually served in the army for two years, uh, but I kept uh, racing. So that was a massive motivation for me and fueled, I guess, my career to avoid being in the army. And also uh, a massive uh, pressure to not ask questions when you're in Kiev and, and the bus driver is saying, hey, did you hear about whatever? It's kind of like, okay, but you know, you're not going to be asking questions. You're not going to be doing anything to, to rock the boat uh, in that situation because the stakes are way too high for you. This is, I mean, this is completely what you're doing. Everything is cycling. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now... Back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Tell, tell me, um, tell me about when you first saw the the uh, buses. So there were 
you know, countless buses um, brought to Kiev for evacuation. They're covered in lead. Kind of run me through that whole when you saw them, what they what they physically looked like, um, what people were saying, and because I, I, wow, yeah, those buses. Um, I think because I saw them during a training ride. Uh, just from mind you, this is '86, so it's what uh, 34 years ago. Uh, because we saw them on a training ride, I'm sort of concluding from that that it was before the race started. So we went for a training ride. So it must have been first or second day after we have arrived in Kiev, uh, and we went for a ride. And just outside of Kiev, as we're riding and we're riding in a group, so it's 20 guys and plus a team car behind. So as we're leaving Kiev, because our base was in like in the city itself, so you had to ride for about 10, 15 K through the okay. city to get out of the city. So as we got out of the city, we see these buses lined up on both sides of the road, like probably for two, three kilometers nonstop, bus one after another just parked on the side of the road empty buses uh, and a lot of them not all but a lot of them were covered in lead you know the windows were covered in lead uh, and after that when we came back we were obviously talking about it and someone i guess mentioned that these buses are for the kids to be evacuated from kiev and this is when it hit me that this shit is real you know right. it's it's not a joke if they are evacuating kids from Kiev, getting them out of, of the city, this is this is serious. This is not a joke. This is going to be uh, well. It's already a disaster, and they're trying to save the kids. Now, when when you think about it, Kiev was at the time. I think it's obviously a capital of Ukraine, or the capital of Ukraine. Uh, Two point five million people. Uh, right. 100 kilometers away, like 60 miles away from uh, Chernobyl. So if you put yourself in the shoes of the authorities, you would probably asking yourself a question, well, okay, well, what do we do? We have uh, a major city on our hands to deal with. We have maybe another, there's plenty of other smaller cities around. So it's not just Kyiv in isolation. There are smaller sure. cities, 200, 100,000 each villages, townships, you're talking about, I don't know, three and a half, four million people right. to, to sort of, to care about. Uh, and then you, you think of what actually is happening in Chernobyl. Uh, this thing is, is, is on fire. It's blowing radiation. Like, if you compare it to a nuclear, nuclear attack, like bombing, nuclear right. bomb, uh, uh, there's a huge difference in it because the, the bomb explodes and obviously emits radiation, but the spread is because there is an explosion. And I guess I'm not specialist in it, but I guess there is less radiation in the bomb than when um, you compare it to uh, a nuclear reactor constantly emitting a massive amount of radiation 24 hours a day, right. nonstop for days, days and days. So for authorities, I think the question was, well, what do we do? Uh, 
obviously these guys have no idea who are in charge of all of this so i'm guessing their uh, advisors people who understood what they're dealing with probably have told them that uh, anywhere near their reactor it's deadly it's lethal you know you go there you're dead right yes. there right there yeah unless you put some protective gear but if you move away let's say i don't know 500 meters away from the reactor or a kilometer away i don't know the numbers but let's say you move away slightly you are not going to be dead right away but it's bad you know it's it's you're going to get sick and then you will die maybe two months later right if you if you move away maybe five kilometers you're not going to be dead right away or even you might not even have any consequences but if you stay only for five ten minutes if you stay for three four hours you're going to get sick and you're going to die and as you move further and further away the danger i guess uh lessens and uh that's where i guess this idea of a 30 kilometer zone came into place they've decided that 30 kilometers is more or less uh safe outside of that zone it's still bad you know it's still going to right. affect you but it's not little immediately it's not deadly immediately and uh when you look at kiev which was uh, 60 miles away from the uh, nuclear reactor i guess the idea was well we have now four million people three and a half million people on our hands especially kiev you cannot evacuate well you can but how are you going to do it like where are you going to place all these people right to right. 2.5 million people you cannot stop the economy and all of those things but 100k is kind of safe enough and if we i guess implement some safety uh, measures we probably can avoid um, very bad sort of consequences it's still going to be bad but nobody's going to die tomorrow nobody's going to die in three months and we will just hush hush and keep going so i think i guess that was that was the approach they took so the information you're getting then, um, you're, you're sharing with me uh, uh, a previous discussion we had, where there were two radio stations that you were able to listen to uh, from Kiev, uh, and I believe they're out of, out, out of Germany, but two radio stations where then you were hearing a different perspective on what was happening. So tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, um, those radio stations, one was called uh, Voice of America, and another was called uh, Free Europe, I think, Radio Svoboda. That was called yeah, Radio Freedom, whatever you call it. Uh, both of them obviously were financed and funded by the CIA. Is everybody knows that by now? Sure. And they were designed to, uh, well, for obviously for propaganda purposes. But unlike uh, Soviet radio, I think they have supplied plenty of. Uh, I would say useful information, maybe not necessarily truthful all the time, but it was useful. So for me, uh, I discovered those um, uh, radio station as a key. Things in, in countries like Soviet Union, uh, you have to understand, even though you're locked up and the information is controlled, you cannot control everything. You know, it's impossible, especially in pre-internet days of books and radio stations and all of that. You cannot control that. Uh, books were still smuggled in, and those two stations were jammed. There was a lot of uh, uh, sophisticated, I guess, equipment to jam them, but 
if you had a decent radio receiver, uh, radio, you could still, you can still hear, you can still listen to this uh, broadcast. I mean, they were extremely hard to listen to because of the jamming, but it's, it was possible. That's how we were listening also to uh, some music uh, from the West. Yeah, music was also smuggled in, plenty of music. I, when I was growing up, I had access to all and anything I like, you know, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, and Deep Purple, and whatnot, Pink Floyd, all of those things. My wife is smiling at me. <laughs> uh, so uh, I discovered those stations when I was a kid. You know, things like that word get around. People ask you, hey, have you listened to this? Have you listened to that? And that's how you start tuning in. Obviously, it's a shortwave stations, uh, shortwave uh, broadcasts. So you would sit sometimes at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night and just browse, I guess, right. the radio waves trying to catch. Um, so so what, was, what was coming through? I mean, what, what were you hearing? What were people starting to hear about, uh, you know, the, the Chernobyl um, incident? Well, they were, they, were telling, they were telling, they were saying that uh, Chernobyl had a very, very serious uh, nuclear accident and Chernobyl is blowing up. Uh, a lot of uh, radiation into the air, so much so that people in uh, people uh, scientists in Sweden have noticed the second day, uh, I think second or first day after the accident, they they were noticing unusual readings on their radiation, I guess devices or whatever they call them. So they were telling us uh, from those stations that Chernobyl has a huge problem. Yeah, so as you can see, it's a couple of thousand kilometers away from Kyiv, and on the second day after the accident, they knew about it more uh, than us. And that was, at the time, for a while, that was the only source of information about what happened. And as Always in Soviet Union, you have to sort of compile your picture of what's going on from different sources. So those radio stations were one source, rumors were the other source. Obviously, people who have been evacuated from uh, Chernobyl and Pripyat. Pripyat was a small township, like a service city to uh, Chernobyl, right? Uh, a nuclear station. Uh, they started obviously talking. They have seen death. They have seen people dying. They've seen, I guess, I think there was a helicopter that caught fire and fell somewhere near the station. So wow. these things were spreading. And a rumor in Soviet Union was one of the sources of truth. So you usually accept the rumors okay. as, as truth. So we, we had this picture of like a few days into the accident. We knew that the shit had hit the fan in a big way. And and when you were biking, uh, then, so Kiev is starting to, to em empty out, right? But you, when you're biking, they're actually um, washing the city streets down with, with big equipment, right? Every few hours, is that? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, every, every few hours. They started, uh, obviously, at some point, for example, when the peace race was supposed to start on, I don't remember the date, I think it was the 3rd of May, something like that. Okay. 
when the teams have arrived in, in Kiev, all the Western teams, France, uh, I don't remember if United States was part of it. I mean, they were part of it from time to time. I don't think they were constant presence during the peace race, I guess, because of political sort of differences. But the Western, uh, Euro uh, Western European nations always participated. So when they landed in Kiev, by this time, that probably is 10 days after the accident, uh, everybody knew pretty much what was happening. And at this stage, the Soviet authorities, I guess, had no choice but to start uh, talking about it in, in a limited way. So Western teams literally turned around, they've chartered the plane and left. Right. They didn't even bother participating. They didn't bother even leaving the airport. They were so scared, they just packed their bags. Oh, didn't even pack the bags. Right. <laughs> they just uh, boarded the plane and left. And only the uh, Eastern Bloc countries, such as uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary and Romania and all of those guys, they were ordered to stay in race. So um, what was the question you asked? Uh, so, so, when you, so when you're racing, um, the streets are empty, right? And they're periodically oh, yeah, washing. Yeah, so yeah, so what are you making? What's, what's going through your mind and, and, and your, your teammates, I guess? It's got to be like, God, this is, this is significantly more uh, serious than what they're telling us. Or... It, because you said you, you you get many sources of information. You're getting uh, the radio station. You're getting rumors, which you are um, you, you could trust. And now you're also getting you're observing things. You, you observe the buses um, lining up, and now you're going through the city, and you're like, whoa! Um, and plus, you're like, the uh, Americans aren't here. You know, the Fre the French aren't here, and, and, and so on. Um, tell me about that experience when you're you're going through the city's empty, the streets are being washed. What are you thinking? What are other people saying? What does that mean to you? Are you concerned about yourself? Even I, I know you're 20. When we're 20, it's like, ah, whatever. But were there moments where you just kind of thought, wow, or I've got to get more information. I've got it. I have to figure out more of what's going on. Here's three people I can talk to. It's, you know, uh, this kind of accidents, I guess, maybe you understand now much more about that. But at the time, uh, you see, it doesn't hurt you, right? It doesn't make you bleed. It, it doesn't kill you. Uh, and you kind of think that, well, nothing is really happening, right? It's invisible. Nothing is really happening. I'm fine. What happens in the future, I don't really know. And probably it's not going to affect me that much. So that's that's kind of the uh, mindset and interpretation of the events you have at the time. Even though everything around you tells you otherwise, right. even 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 the authorities at some point have basically uh, unofficially said, if you can get out get out of Kiev, get out of Kiev. So a lot of people left. Uh, I don't know how many, obviously thousands of thousands of people have left. Uh, my, my future wife, for example, left to uh, Moldova to her friend's place. They just packed and left because see, people at some, at some on, on one hand, they were realizing it's, it's, it's dangerous, it's bad, it's going to affect your health. Uh, on the other hand, uh, people like myself, uh, 
we were, well, as I said, it doesn't hurt, it's invisible, and we have a race to race, and I have a career to keep, to keep uh, um, racing. So I don't really, uh, not that I don't really care, but do I have a choice? No, I don't. Right. So I stay where I am. As I said, even though information I could, could observe was, was suggesting that this is going to be really bad. So as I said, they were started washing the streets, um, which obviously washes away the radiation, like the, some of the radiation that is on the streets. So if you wash it, you at least reduce Right. The, I don't know the, how exactly it works. The particles or whatever, they get washed away and then they get dumped into a river or whatever. But they started washing, not every hour, not every few hours, but constantly, like, they would wash uh, streets in Kiev and then they would come back, I guess, the next day and keep keep washing, keep washing. And when the peace race started, I remember watching it from from home, uh, from, from the apartment I was sort of in, they were broadcasting the entire race. And I remember the streets were completely empty. Like there was no one on the streets. Uh, I, I think a lot of people realize that it's, it's better to keep in. It's kind of uh, similar to what's going on now, although we are forced to stay inside. But I guess a lot of people back then at the time realized it's a bad idea to be outside. So they were either working or if, if they were at home, they were staying at home. So the streets, I remember, being completely empty. Not 100% empty, but pretty empty. And the race was, there was no spectators. There was, there was nothing. I mean, I didn't race the actual peace race. I didn't qualify. But I was watching it uh, from, from, from the apartment on television. And it was bizarre. <laughs> small peloton, because half of the peloton had left. So it was only small. Uh, but also, the uh, speaking of rumors, that one of the rumors was that to uh, safeguard yourself from the radiation, you have to drink a lot of uh, red wine. Okay. So people, I mean, this is Soviet Union, right? Even though it's not Russia, it's Ukraine. Sure. But it's the same culture. People like uh, like a drink, <laughs> so they would not even have to be prompted to to drink more. So uh, you would imagine. There was a lot of drinking going on, and uh, in addition to red wine, vodka would be also used. I mean, people who I remember saying, it's alcohol, you know, it doesn't matter if it's red or white, we might as well just drink vodka. Yeah. So uh, a lot of drinking was going on. Uh, I, I, it was a weird, weird time. Uh, some people, as myself, basically resigned, you know, like, I can't do anything about it. I'm here to stay for the next uh, several weeks at least uh, for training camp and whatnot. I can't go anywhere, so I'm stuck. I, I, there's nothing to worry about. Like, I can't do anything about yeah. it, so I just stay. Wow. A must read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, a brave demonstration of speaking truth to power, School of Errors rips the lid off the billion dollar school safety industry. Using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. 
Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. So, you know, I I thought this was was the whole story. And, and then, you know, we were talking more, um, and you talked, uh, made me aware that, you know, Chernobyl happened, but it was also in this bigger con- context of perestroika. So uh, that was the political movement uh, for reformation within the Communist Party of the Soviet Union during the 1980s. It was widely associated with uh, Soviet uh, leader Mikhail Gorbachev and uh, the Glasnost policy reform. So part of that you're sharing was, so again, concurrent with, with Chernobyl, um, suddenly there were independent newspapers that were, were being produced. And, and I want you to tell me that uh, story because you know, prior to that, it was state newspapers, and suddenly these private newspapers, which are very expensive, but they're you, you can you have high trust in the information. So, tell me, you know, the information that you're getting from these private uh, newspapers, how they they formed, uh, what you were learning, how you're trying to process that, things maybe you were learning about uh, the Soviet Union that were different than the what you grew up. What, what, what you were taught, you know, the, your first 20 years, um, because, you know, this, this is fascinating uh, it, uh, by itself, you know, that to understand that that uh, that, that was happening. So give us that context. Yeah. To, um, to, to give you a bit of a background, we, by the uh, mid-80s, when uh, Gorbachev started his reforms, we have reached a point, at least, I guess I'm primarily talking about my generation. So people at the time are 20, 25, maybe up to 30 years old. Uh, slightly older, like my parents, I will, I will leave them, that generation, I'll leave them alone for now. But we have reached a point where we stopped uh, paying any attention, well, like we didn't read newspapers. Start, let's start with that. Uh, These are state, only, state newspapers, right? Yeah, state state, okay. state newspapers. They were only uh, from memory through this Vestia, Pravda, Komsomolskaya, maybe five, six major newspapers okay. coming out of Moscow. Obviously, they were published in other cities, but production and content was produced in Moscow. And then you have your local ones, which nobody paid any attention to. Sure. So by by this time, uh, in mid 80s, nobody is paying any attention to newspapers. Nobody is paying any attention to state television. Again, two three stations controlled by the state. The only the only reason you would watch television is to watch a movie. Nobody paid any attention to the news. So we reached a point where. Uh, the propaganda became uh, so annoying and we became so immune that we stopped paying any attention to it. It was completely irrelevant. We right. didn't read it. We didn't listen to it. It was all non-relevant. And then Gorbachev comes along and starts his uh, reforms. And he he started with this uh, idea of glasnost, which 
means, I guess, uh, openness, and not so much openness, but uh, I guess open access to information. So glassness right. means we're going to uh, talk about things openly without restrictions. Loosely, loosely translated, this sort of concept of glassness. So all of a sudden, uh, first of all, he allowed private enterprise, which was a criminal offense. You could not have a private enterprise in Soviet Union. If you if you try to, you would be arrested in jail. So if you try to, which is the fundamental concept of capitalism, buy low, sell high. If you try that in Soviet Union, if you buy something for five rubles and try to sell for 10 rubles, and they find out that will be a criminal offense called speculation. You would be jailed. Wow. So one of the things that Gorbachev did, he allowed private enterprise. They were called cooperatives at first, but it was literally, in essence, private enterprise, a store. You could open a store and sell goods. But they also allowed publication of uh, newspapers, yeah, pretty much newspapers, because nobody could publish independently a book because the publishing houses were still under uh, under government control. But somehow they found a w way to publish newspapers, private private newspapers, and that brought. I think that what actually made the whole uh, reform possible is because people all of a sudden realize that they have been living in a castle of lies, so to speak. They did not know, they did not know the past. Uh, we were lied about our past. Our past was obviously glorified. We have achieved uh, an enormous success in building the best society on earth almost like in utopia, even though like it's, it's one of those paradoxes you see around yourself and it's not a paradise at all. Uh, it's a decent way of living. You know, nobody is hungry, nobody is suffering, uh, but it's obviously not what you would describe as right. utopia. So uh, when this is all started, that gave us access to information that was not available before. So we started learning about repressions uh, during the Stalin era. We started learning about unprecedented corruption in the government uh, and things like that. So during that Chernobyl time, those newspapers were also the source of information were, that were uh, informing us about what was happening. And those newspapers, as you said, they were very expensive, probably, what, 20 times more expensive than a state newspaper. Mind you, the state newspaper was so cheap. Right. It was just pretty much a nominal price for a newspaper. Two kopecks, I think, cost. It's like nothing, um, the price of a matchbox. But those independent ones were costing a ruble or two rubles. This was expensive very expensive so what people did they would buy one and they would just pass it around sure so there were small edition newspapers because people could not and not everybody could afford them but they could pass them around and that was one of the features of the soviet union going back to the samizdat era you know what samizdat is i don't know so, samizdat is 
a typically Soviet uh, invention. Samizdat literally means self-published. Okay. So the, when the books were banned in Soviet Union, people used to type banned books by hand and then distribute those, not manuscripts, but those books typed on A4 uh, paper sure. among themselves. And that also was a criminal offense. So if you, if you, that's how I, for example, discovered uh, books by Solzhenitsyn. So one of my friends passed me a book, and that's how I read for the first time in my life. Amazing, yeah. That's something that blew my mind away, you know. Uh, but those newspapers were kind of same as that, you know. They were now legally uh, permissible, but we would pass them around as those books that we used to pass around before. So um, th that, that independent publishing, I guess, fueled the reforms because people understood that we were living in, 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 in a bizarre world of lies and uh, uh, kind of, um, yeah, pretty much jail, you know, like you, you were locked up, you weren't allowed to leave the country, you were lied to uh, for 50 years or, or so, and all of a sudden you have this material available to you telling you that you know um, what they told you all your life was a lie and of course that uh, made people want uh, to change to change the system so that's why he had so much I guess support among the population to to change but the change went way, way too far you know I don't think they planned for the destruction or the collapse of the Soviet Union but that information but which is you know going back to this idea of what information is and how powerful and important right. information right. is that information destroyed the soviet union because everyone realized that uh far out we, we were we were living in a in this strange world of lies and we need to change we need to change that but didn't did, we didn't change much when we talked um you're telling me it was like, you know, growing up and, and the only rainbow you knew was always black and white. It was, and suddenly it's, you see the colors of the rainbow. Once these, these newspapers, you have access to these newspapers. Um, and I'm assuming these newspapers, everybody is seeking them for purely for the content. I mean, these aren't like newspapers that we would think of, you know, today where there's a few articles and the rest is all advertisements and things like that. This is, people are thirsty for, for this content. So, um, you know, how do, how do you get these newspapers? Um, I, I mean, I'm trying to figure out were there, you said they were, they were shared and they were passed around, but people probably didn't have a lot of money to print these. Who was writing these? Did you have any one that you particularly went to? Um, and, and then on top of that, maybe how did it change your thinking? You know, you, you're, you're, you're 20 or twenties, uh, maybe, you know, your parents, older people, how did they start to, to process things when it's like, boy, you know, half my life or the majority of my life, I believe this. And now, uh, you know, I have this information Did people just ignore it. Did people just say, oh, okay, I'm 60 years old. I'm just going to you know, pretend this doesn't exist and it just play out the hand. I, I, this is this is wild from a sociological perspective of how people process information and how it changed their lives. Tell me what you saw. Um, 
people of older generation, I think it was a lot harder for them to uh, accept accept the fact that they believed a lie all their lives. For us, it was a lot easier because we did not believe the idea. Like my generation, at least, I guess, people who had... I, I don't want to sort of to di distinguish or to um, make people into smart ones and stupid ones. Uh, I don't believe that is actually a, a, an accurate description of general uh, people. I think people generally uh, intelligent enough to understand pretty much anything. It just comes down to laziness. Some people are lazy to, to use their in intellect to discover things, to figure out things, to read. Uh, also, they are poisoned, their minds are poisoned by uh, all kinds of entertainment and all kinds of nonsense. But they are intelligent people. Uh, obviously, there are some stupid ones, but there are probably a small number. So for older people, it was not a matter of stupidity or not. It was a matter of rejection. In the, as you probably know, uh, there's a lot of uh, studies around psychology, how people... I just read it. A couple of days ago, literally, a nice study about it, how people reject uh, 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 a contradiction to their prior belief. So it was very hard for them to accept, even though some of them knew something about, for example, Stalinism, like my father, for example, who was born in 1931. So during Stalin's era, he was a young man and then Obviously, by the time Stalin died, he was 20, 22. Um, he knew something about it. He obviously witnessed uh, and probably heard a lot of things that was going on during Stalin's era. So he, his view of Stalin was he was obviously a hard man, but that what he did was necessary to... Uh, first of all, win the war. So he was surrounded by enemies. He was surrounded by capitalists, you know, <laughs> wanting to destroy the Soviet Union. So some of the things that Stalin did were necessary. He was a hard man. And most of all, and the most important thing, he won the war. So you, when you're looking at, you're trying to understand, when people try, like that's what sometimes bothers me so much about Western uh, uh, journalists uh, writing about Russia, they completely miss a very important point about Russia, the importance of the war, of Second World War in, in, in Russian psyche. Recently, like during this 75th anniversary of the victory of, of uh, uh, Nazi Germany, I think the White House, uh, obviously from Trump's uh, it was probably his idea. They didn't even mention the Soviet Union as 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 uh, victors in the war, which was completely bizarre. You know, like right. very very strange. So they celebrated the victory of uh, United States, England, uh, United Kingdom, France, but did not even mention uh, the Soviet Union. Wow. Which I know I understand that, but what I'm saying is that if 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 people who write and talk about Soviet Union, Russia now, 
don't understand the, the importance of, of that event in the psyche of the Russian culture, they, they just completely miss the point. It's extremely important for uh, everyone uh, who, who is from there to uh, keep this in mind that this is a, is a, is a massive event that uh, is part of our, I guess, psyche. You know, we've lost an enormous amount of uh, people in that war. Right. Uh, it was a brutal war, uh, and not so much. I'm not so much talking about the fighting and all those things, but the suffering of the civilian population. What the Nazis did to us—that's what sits in our psyche and yeah. continues to shape, I guess. Uh, understanding of the outside world, so to speak. So for these people, for people like my dad and my mom, uh, it was very hard to reject that past. So even though information was coming in, uh, showing that what they lived through was based on a lie, well, they had difficulty accepting that. So they were trying to justify all those things that happened by the necessity and by the idea. Right. And now my generation, people who were born in the 60s, I was born in 1966. So people born in the 60s and I guess 70s, I don't think 80s matters uh, from that point of view. But for us, we did not believe in the idea anymore. It was uh, complete nonsense. So we, that's why I said we did not read the newspapers. We ignored propaganda. It was bouncing off our mind. I mean, obviously, it had an effect on us. Right. Obviously, we believed certain things about the West and all of that. We believed, for example, that the war with the United States is, is uh, coming. It's unavoidable. So, and that also, I guess, in a sense, shaped our pers perspective on life is that sooner or later it's going to be a war, and this time it's going to be a nuclear war, so we might not even be around anymore. Right. Uh, but when these things started to happen, the reformation in the Soviet Union, we really embraced and uh, accepted uh, on faith pretty much everything that was coming from this uh, alternative, I guess, independent press from the newspapers. Mind you, they were also polluted with all kinds of nonsense uh, to do with uh, what I would describe as yellow pre press. So it was a mixture of uh, articles about uh, Stalinism mixed with uh, Black magic, stuff like that, astrology, sure. things like that. Sure. But we embraced we embraced this, and uh, when the reforms started to be broadcast on television, so this nobody ever ever watched uh, uh, what was going on inside the party. They were broadcasting uh, communist forums and whatnot you know, on television. Nobody would watch it. But all of a sudden, debates in the Russian or uh, Soviet at the time. Parliament were broadcast live on television and the entire country was watching it. Wow. Debates in the parliament. It was unheard of, you know. Uh, so yeah. 
uh, we really embraced it and we really believed a lot of things that were written and it it, it changed it changed a lot uh, of what we saw and what we understood so um how about verifying information you talked about you know yellow yellow journalism how, how about um you know checking that things there wasn't Propaganda, government uh, infiltration in in this in the information you're getting in the newspapers. You said there was a high level of trust, but um, was there was there any other type of vetting that you did with that information? Um, no. Okay. No, you 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 could only lots of these um, articles in newspapers was citing archives, right? So you would immediately assume that. They are not lying, so they're, and a lot of a lot of these people were uh, historians and scientists, social scientists, okay. who all of a sudden were allowed to speak the truth. So I'm assuming a lot of them knew, like people who were working with archives, uh, probably knew quite a lot, but they were not, right? Not so much. Not obviously they weren't allowed to talk. But for them, opening their mouth and speaking the truth was suicidal. So they were not even in a position to discuss those things. So, and also you need to keep in mind that psychologically, when information is coming that completely contradicts the previous information, you kind of accept it by default. Uh, and it was written in a, in a, in a nice format. It was written in a narrative form as a story, so you have no problem accepting it. And and, and then you also ask yourself a question: Well, uh, what's the alternative? Like, if what they're talking about, what's other possibility of of we have already we know the official story, and that, that now they're telling us something else. So you you by default accept the something else because they. The previous one, the official one, is a lie. So Did you get together with friends or or family or other people oh, yeah, and, and talk through this? And, and and oh yeah, yeah, that was for for the next couple of years up until I guess. Well, the real the real reform started I guess in in about eighty eight, eighty nine. In eighty nine, I remember watching those debates in the parliament live between training training sessions. So we would. Right in the morning, a big ride would be four or five hours, and then you come and have a few hours of rest, and then you go for another ride at night. So we had three rides a day. So between those sessions, you would watch live broadcast of um, debates in the parliament, and that's where you would see Yeltsin, you know, giving hard time to everyone. Um, Saharov was. Uh, well-known uh, dissident that was that spent time in 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 jail, not in, in jail as such, but in, uh, in 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 labor camps. He was uh, a nuclear scientist, by the way. I think he was a Nobel uh, laureate uh, as well. Not sure about that, but he was a very well-known scientist in the Soviet Union. Now he became all of a sudden he was elected as member of parliament and he was giving speeches so you're watching all this stuff 
and, and you literally do not believe what you hear because you, you mind you if you if you imagine you grew up in in a, in, a, in, in a system completely controlled by the state you know that nobody is telling their mind speaking their mind right all of a sudden they're discussing things that were unheard of before uh, it's it's hard to describe uh, actually the effect of what was going on you 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 don't like sitting watching this and going holy shit yeah this is this is <laughs> this is really happening they're, they're changing they're changing the country so that was mind-blowing at the time do you see any um similarities between what's happening right now for example in the united states um and and what's what you lived through in the 80s in in russia from a political um you know standpoint you know, in the United States, you know, question, should we play the national anthem before sporting events, which just had been typical? And now, uh, you know, a lot of uh, professional teams and, you know, college teams, whatever, are choosing not to do that because they feel it's not inclusive. It, it brings um, oppressive tones uh, from the lyrics. And, and uh, you know, additionally, of course, you know, you're, you're aware of what, of, of, you know, what's happening, but... Um, are there parallels? And if there are parallels, where do you think uh, things will be at in the next, you know, twelve months, two years? Yeah, there are there are parallels. Uh, I'll probably go a little bit back and explain uh, my uh, uh, perception of what the West was, and then as I left the Soviet Union, I discovered completely different reality. So my perception of the West when I was in Soviet Union, it was backed up by my travel to the Western countries when I was part of the Soviet national team. Um, we, we thought, even though we were told otherwise, we, we thought of the West as this kind of uh, paradise. Not exactly, not literally, but a place of plenty, a place of... Uh, universal prosperity. I mean, well, how how you, you actually form this view is um, by no by believing that everyone has a car. In Soviet Union, almost no one had a car. Right. It was impossible to have a car, private car. I mean, some people did have, but the only way to to, to have a car is you would only ninety percent of people who had cars engaged in some kind of illegal activity to earn this kind of money because the prices were insane. Sure. Uh, so you form this uh, uh, picture of the West as uh, uh, a place of plenty, a place of prosperity. Everyone has a car. Everyone lives in uh, luxurious houses or apartments. Uh, plenty of food. I mean, we had food, but it was limited in, in choice. So, and especially as you travel to the West, you see this an amazing abundance of everything, right? And it blows you. Like the first time I went to West Germany, it blew my mind. You know, I walked into a shop, and my draw literally dropped. You know, like how can people even live like that? You know, it's impossible to for me to imagine the abundance, the uh, how clean the roads are, how polite everyone is. You know, Russia is a rough country, so when everyone is like in Germany, saying that uh, 
Dr. Sean, Dr. Sean, thank you. Uh, so you have this um, idea of uh, the West being uh, this very prosperous society where everyone is pretty much rich, even though, the, as I said, Soviet Union official version of it is that only a small portion of the people are rich, everyone is pretty much uh, poor, and there is a lot of unemployment, people living on the streets, and they will show you pictures and videos and on official broadcasts and all of that. So that was my and pretty much everyone else's understanding of what the West was, pr pr prosperity all through. Right. Then I leave the country, right? So I left in 91, and I spent a few months in Poland at first, and then I moved to Denmark, lived there for a couple of years, and then from Denmark I ended up in Canada, and then eventually uh, traveled and settled in Australia. And by, by now, like a few years in, I, I understood that the West is not what I thought it was. It's still prosperous. It's still land of plenty. Right. It's a land of opportunity. You could be anything you want, uh, but it's not a paradise. And as I continued living in the West, I uh, started noticing more and more uh, similarities with the Soviet Union. I think the first thing I've noticed was the bureaucracy, which was actually much worse than in Soviet Union. In Soviet Union, it was bad, but you could get around it by bribing people. It was okay. pretty, yeah. pretty normal. If you need things done, you just go and openly pay someone, and things get done immediately. It was very easy. While in the West, bureaucracy was just as bad, but you could not bribe anyone, or at least not openly, or at least right. you, could not, you couldn't know how to do it. And it was dangerous. If you offer someone a bribe, you might end up in trouble. Um, but then more and more, especially in the last, I don't know, probably 10 years, uh, it's not just those things, you know, the bureaucracy, the inefficacy of institutions. Obviously, you're noticing that the government is not that much different in their goals and their approach to people. You know, there, is, there are two classes, you know, there are us uh, and there are them. Uh, the, the, the us, the, uh, the people at the top live like kings, uh, just like in Soviet Union, and people who are not at the top, uh, not, they're not poor or anything, but the difference is immense. Right. But as we continue, uh, as the time went by, and I started paying attention, reading, I started noticing uh, other things like propaganda. Uh, in fact, so much similar uh, that it actually really, really interesting how the methods and approaches the Soviet Union developed over the years are now implemented in the West. And now, with the help of uh, digital economy and digital tools and internet, the uh, propaganda methods are much, much more effective. So tell me about that. What, what, what's similar? Uh, give me a couple of examples. Oh, it's, it would take us another two hours to just discuss right, that. One example. 
of, of some propaganda that that uh, you saw in in the West that uh, it patterns well, similar. Probably, well, there's quite a few like major ones. Uh, one is glorification of the ruling class or the government. Okay. The government is God, and we seek help from the government all the time. Government needs to do this. Government needs to do that. Right. So um, somehow people, like if, I guess if you compare it to 100 years ago, people were not relying so much on the government. They were uh, much more independent in, and much more responsible for what they do. Right. Right. While, while somehow what something happened at some point, and I guess that was a slow process, uh, people are now relying uh, on the government. Government had supposed to solve all our problems. Gotcha. Uh, it's, it was exactly in, like that in Soviet Union. People were not independently thinking, like generally speaking. Right. There were obviously people who were. And I guess maybe I, I, I was one of them, but uh, generally speaking, it's all about the government. The government needs to fix this. The government needs to fix that. Well, you know, what, what about you? Like, you, why don't you fix it yourself? Um, then there is a glorification of war. It's exactly the same as in the Soviet Union. Okay. Soviet Union, as I've mentioned this before, and the in the the place that the war had taken in our minds as 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 the Soviet I guess citizens I, I like reluctant to describe myself as a Russian because it becomes a little bit offensive nowadays but um, mind you the Soviet Union had many uh, nationalities within its borders it's not just Russians and Ukrainians there were a lot more uh, so the glorification of war, the glorification, I mean, there is obviously a place for a war. Uh, and in my, you have to keep in mind my views. I'm really, right. Um, anyway, we're not going there, but there is a place for war uh, in self-defense to start with. You know, you, you, you obviously are justified to defend yourself as an individual as well as a society, as a group of individuals, as a, as a unit of society. But um, uh, what's happening is that the wars and the aggression is, is glorified. You know, uh, this is where what you've said about the national anthems is, is coming in. Like, obviously, I have my own opinion about this, uh, I guess, phenomena in the first place, about why we're singing the anthem in the, in the first place. I'm, I'm not going there. Right. Uh, but the way it is spinned by the media is what exactly was happening in, in the Soviet Union, so that uh, you are told by the media what to think. Uh, so, and because the media is so pervasive, people begin to think what they're told. Right. That's one one of the parallels of uh, of between the, what's happening in, for example, in the United States and the Soviet Union. And there are many, 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 many more sure. we, can, we, can, we can talk about. But it basically comes down to, I guess, the major ones, uh, the propaganda, the brainwashing, 
and the acceptance by people of, of these ideas. Uh, you said what I'm thinking is going to happen in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to get worse before it will get better. Because if, if, if there are any parallels with the Soviet Union, eventually people will come to realize that they're being lied to, that they cannot live like that any, any longer. But you're far, far away from it. You have to, I guess, live through the lies first before right. you realize. So you, you're far away. But you, you have already started this process, I believe. And it, probably you're past of the point of return. It's been underway for quite a while. Right. And it's getting, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. I mean, I'm hoping it's not going to turn into, into a bloody war. I'm hoping, but who knows? You know, you, you have everything in place. People, which is a good thing. People are armed, which is a good thing. It's, it's a very good thing that you in America are armed. Men are armed. A lot of right. men are armed and women as well. So this can actually prevent uh, a conflict. You work in clinical trials with people with depression, uh, Alzheimer's, cognitive uh, decline. You, you shared with me that more people are coming in um, and wanting to participate in clinical trials for depression. Um, so tell me what you make of that. What are, what are people saying? Why do they want to participate in these studies? Is there a reflection on what's happening in society? Are more people be, uh, more depressed? Are, are they perceiving, um, you know, that this is a, this is a really, um, I guess, darker time for society? Um, I, I think there are some real nuanced observations with that. What, what are, what, what's your take on why that's happening? Um, I, I work, yeah, with a private company that um, does clinical trials for uh, depression and Alzheimer's disease. Um, but I don't work directly with patients. I work in marketing, so I'm okay. in digital marketing. So I work in advertising, uh, content production, things like that. So I don't deal with patients directly. I'm not even allowed to. Sure. So all I do is advertising. But to give you, uh, I guess, without revealing too much uh, business information, uh, we've seen uh, an enormous jump in, in inquiries. Okay. Since the uh, pandemic started, although I must say that it's when I started with this company as well. So I started in March. Um, so it could have been coincident. Like it could have been uh, as a result. It obviously is a result of my marketing efforts because the company did not uh, engage as much in marketing of what they do. Right. Now, now do, but the the in the in uh, amount of inquiries, what compared to what it was before, is is enormous. So what I'm what I'm I guess can conclude from that is when people see us marketing what we do, they eagerly res respond, and part part of my job because I receive the actual inquiries. Right. Um, 
I can conclude that uh, people are going through a tough period of time. And this is actually public information. I mean, it's it's not a secret. Right. That, are, are they uh, finding it? I mean, from your side, and I, and I know, you know, there's there's obviously proprietary information, but but you can see from your interface people that are conducting searches on the internet for these terms oh, yeah. and, and click through and, and things like that. Um, you can objectively. Yeah. Look yeah. Obviously being, being in advertising, digital advertising, I can see exactly what people are searching for. So I work with Google okay. and, and Facebook. So these are now two primary or at the, at the, at the moment, the only two platforms that we use, we're going to use more, but uh, obviously Facebook has nothing to do with search Facebook. Advertising is different to Google, but in Google you can see what people are uh, searching for, and you can see that the, what searches are on the rise and what searches are on on, on the decline. So that's right. public information, uh, and people are searching for help for for depression, and the, we will see pretty soon, I guess, um, information about suicides and. Thing like it's probably too early. They don't. They right. keep gathering information, but we will see the results, I guess, by the end of the year and things like that. Uh, and you also, in our previous talk, mentioned those ninety days. Sort of, it's not yeah. a scientific fact. Then again, what is scientific fact anyway? <laughs> but it, we we were kind of in that period of time, hundred to ninety days, when people just about to tell themselves we've had enough. So one yeah. would react with alcohol or drugs. Someone else might attempt to kill themselves. You know, it's 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 one of the reactions people people have to this kind of events. Unfortunately, so what you're talking about, and just so I can um, bring this to to the to the listeners, is uh, Doctor. Uh, Apple in the United States, uh, Rommel in Germany during World War II, uh, participated, led studies uh, at that time of soldiers, a uh, concept called finite voltage. And basically, uh, how long could soldiers be functioning on the front lines before they would either be killed, um, they would be taken prisoner, or they would have a mental collapse? So that was military. And then there were additional uh, civilian studies that took place on civilian morale, military-led uh, mostly in World War II, although some of these studies took place in the early 90s uh, by from the U.S. government. I'm sure there's there's more out there, but but I was able to to take multiple studies and, and talk with different um, experts and and kind of find a theme that for civilians during a time of of crisis, um, and again, a lot of it gets benchmarked to war because what we've had right now with a prolonged pandemic, uh, coupled to civil unrest. You know, this, this compounding comorbid uh, time of chaos is, is pretty unprecedented. But um, anyway, 90 days. After 90 days, civilians tend to languish. They start to exhibit depression. They start to, to give up um, a, as a pattern. You know, so what do you do uh, from a propaganda standpoint is you make sure that before you hit that, you do a initiatives. So we're going to do a scrap metal drive, for example, to give people purpose. Uh, we're going to do a plant your garden um, campaign. We're going to say we're now in phase four of the military campaign. So people believe there's been a shift. There's been some advance in the military campaign, even though there hasn't authentically been it. 
been this advanced, there, there's this image in people's minds, okay, we're one step closer to having this, this done. So this, this 90 to 100 days, um, and it's interesting because right now I, I'm working with some people who are mapping out what is what has happened for um, you know the first 80, 90, 100 days of the coronavirus pandemic. What are things, propaganda things that have been done? Um, and then also, are they observing people starting to, I guess, languish, you know, starting to have mental collapse? So um, it's fascinating, right? Because there, there really isn't this intense body of research, but we do know that generally it was accepted, you know, about 90 days you had to change things up for, for civilians. So what, what you indicated, Nikolai, is, um, you know, so these webs, these searches, right? You know, maybe right now, People are searching, you know, help with depression, things like that. That could that could evolve to, you know, suicide prevention, things like that, um, uh, or, or you know, just thoughts of suicide. That could become a prevalent web search in another two, three months, especially as we get into colder climate weather here. So sometimes, I mean, we don't have to talk about it now, but sometimes if you could share with me how you look at the different searches as public, that's public information, um, I'd be interested to, to look at that because I'm guessing the first week of the coronavirus shutdowns here in the U.S., for example, people were searching like, you know, how online if they could get certain foods, toilet paper, uh, you know, necessities, things like that, scarcity thinking. And then another thing that I saw happening right away, like the first week. And I was, I had a, mem a member checks, a number of people all around the country were observing the same thing. There's, it's called Craigslist. I don't know if they have it in Australia, but it's basically this online, it's almost an eBay type community, but it's local. So you just put stuff on and say, Hey, you know, like I've, I've got this, you know, really this, this really cool timer right here. And anybody, if you give me $5 for it, I'll drive it to your house. Okay. <laughs> so suddenly uh, this, these Craigslist ads were just flooding literally like 60,000 ads going up a day, like in my area, people selling anything, firewood, I'll bring it to your house, you know, for like $50, which is like half of what it usually would be. But so what was happening in ton of electronics, right? Phones, TVs, and, and or best offer. Um, this is happening all over the United United States. People need money because they, they don't have money to, to buy food. They are getting laid off their jobs. They're trying to get stuff while it's still on the shelves. And then, you know, like two weeks in, the Craigslist stuff kind of stopped. It just went back to normal. And that indicated, ooh, like, so people go to a different phase and... and but but what you're talking about, yeah, is is that when people are searching for depression, to me, that indicates we're out of the scarcity phase and we are into what's called like a crowd in theory. And crowd in is where people believe they're going to be home for a long time. That that, that, that things aren't going to change for a long time, probably months. That's that's and I've seen other sets of, of data come in that can kind of confirm that crowd in theory. Uh, for example, in retail right now. Uh, paint, is, interior paint is selling, puzzles are selling record sales, right? Um, which indicates that this is more of a crowd-in mentality. People believe they're going to be in their homes more. So they're going to buy things that are going to uh, bring them comfort. Even if they don't have enough money for food, for example, it's this, this, this weird thing. But um, wow, so so that's a, that's amazing. Any any Anything that really stood out on you that you're starting to see from the analytics that 
was like a, a big warning or a big, or just something you're like, I can't believe this. I can't at any moment like that. Not really because um, the specifics of what, what I do is so narrow. So we pretty much uh, focused on depression and dementia related uh, um, disease. Uh, so I haven't seen like, as, well, obviously there is a rise in inquiries and a rise in search for, for depression, but nothing that would, I mean, thing is that it kind of makes sense, right? So right. you don't, even, you don't even think, oh, wow, you know, what, see, what, look what, at, at what's going on. So it, it kind of makes sense. It, it especially if you consider other information that is coming out, people having depression and drinking uh, too much and whatnot. So it, it, it's not really, nothing really jumps at you. It's kind of normal, even though any other day it would have been, oh, look, something is going on here. But now it's right. like, okay, yeah, it makes sense. Right. Wow. So, and, and you don't, um, because you're, you're newer with the company, you, you, you can't look back at you know what what it was one year ago this time what it was two years ago three years ago what the searches were do you, do you have that ability yeah i can but it's again it's it would not make uh, any difference for me uh, as to what what i do i don't need to look at what was this year i mean maybe at some point i would have to i don't know it's just sure. it, 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 it's just the way we, we do business at the moment we don't need that data from a year ago i mean i could look at it but it's yeah. not it's not on my <laughs> i'm just i'm just curious um you know because maybe it's like you know you look back one two three years and you're like yeah right now the searches are 10 times what they were over last year or the year before so it's not a seasonal thing it's not like it's it's not mm -hmm. we get to march and april and, and it typically goes here it's like now it's like way, way up here. It's we've never, you know, in looking at maybe a few years of data, this is this is just not something that's uh, cyclical, right? It, it's it's so far off of something that's cyclical. Um, any anything else? Um, I have one question before we before we close here. But uh, anything else you you want to touch upon? Well, there's like we touched on a few things that are really interesting for me, you know, we've touched on the changes that are happening in the United States. This one is a big one for many reasons. Obviously, the United States is the country that everything dances around it and it's a very important player in the global arena. So what's happening there is important for many uh, different reasons. So that, that is a big topic. We didn't really, I guess, um, ex explore that much. Uh, so maybe for another day, I don't know. But you, you've, you've asked me, you know, in your email with, with, with uh, questions, you said, um, you asked me if I, if I know any crazy stories. You, you wanna... So, yeah. So tell me some, some of these amazing biking stories. Um, <laughs> I want to hear them. <laughs> well, it's, it's not like the biking stories but when you said in the email um, do you have uh, anything crazy you want to share it's crazy first, yeah crazy at first i thought well, i don't know it's not when you look back mind you quite a while ago you kind of everything is kind of flat in your memory you know like it's a one big 
blob of uh, uh, of your life. But then I was thinking, I actually remember a couple. Um, one is one is kind of important because um, because the way it pretty much started the end of my career in the Soviet Union, like as, as a cyclist. Okay. Uh, I had this ex- sort of uh, incident where a huge amount of money fell in front of my feet, literally. Uh, and what happened was that uh, during a race, uh, there was a, uh, a rest day. So we, stage races usually have a rest day in the middle of, of a stage race. So we were racing in Sochi, you know, a city that hosted uh, Olympic Games a couple of years ago in Russia, uh, Winter Olympic Games. And myself and my friend uh, went for uh, ice cream. Just, it was very warm, it's early spring. We went for ice cream and as we had uh, ice cream, we're going back to our hotel and this, there is this uh, pedestrian crossing, right? To cross on the other side of the road. Sure. And a car stops in front of us, like literally where we were standing, the car stopped on a red light and blocking us from crossing the road. And I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, so just wait for this car to get out of here. And I, I see that a guy sitting in the back seat has his hand, you know, like outside of a car window, yep, holding to the roof. But in his hand is a handbag, you know, like a small, okay. a small bag, but this bag. Sure. So he's holding a bag and at the same time is holding to the roof with his bag in his hand. And then they waiting for a red light to turn green. And then he takes his hand inside the car and the bag stays on the roof. So he completely forgets about the bag. Okay. And then the car takes off, you know, it just into first gear, bang, gone. And this bag falls in front of me in just in front of my uh, feet. At first, you know, I picked up the bag and I was going to yell, hey, you know, like, oi, where are you going? You know, you've, you've dropped your bag. But the car just took off very, very fast and was gone. Actually, the story is in my book. Uh, and when I was pitching my book to one publisher, he actually came back to me and asked me if the story was true. Yeah, that one. I don't remember the chapter where it is in. You have to read <laughs> it's uh, the renegade, a memoir of a Soviet cyclist, and I'll put a link uh, to it in the blog post. But yeah, it has the, the chapters down down below. Okay, yeah, that, wow. Everyone calls it the book, but it is a book, but it's not finished. I need to tell it to your uh, listeners. So anyway, that bag falls in front of my feet, and I picked it up, and I started wanting to start yelling, but the car was gone. So out of curiosity, I opened the bag. And it's full of cash. Right? <laughs> it's packed with 100 ruble notes. Wow. Like full. Like full. Uh, and, and I'm with my friend, and he says, run. So I, and this, the bag had a zipper. So I opened the zipper and zipped the bag, looked inside. It's full of cash. And he says, run. So I zip it back, and we start running. 
like we were running for probably, I don't know, five minutes at least. Okay. Like, turning right, left, right, left, just get the hell out of there. So we ran into this uh, little kind of a garden, you know, like uh, full of trees and bushes, and we just literally crashed on the ground and just lay down, hoping that these guys will, if they, even if they come back, they will not find us. Right. So we, we spent a few couple of minutes just sitting there, and then I opened the bag just to look in, again what's inside and pull out this cash. It's full of cash, 100, 100 ruble bills. Uh, it was close to 10,000 rubles. Now, just to give you a perspective, my uh, salary at the time was 200 rubles. Okay. And it was pretty, pretty high. Yeah. So you're talking about, what is it, 50 times of yeah. monthly, monthly income? So if, what's a monthly income in the United States? Average like 5,000, 4,000? Yeah. yeah, like so 4,000. 200, 200 grand in that bag. <laughs> sure. So plus, plus, it's not all. It had uh, probably, I don't know, 100 maybe gram of gold, like um, melted gold in these little blobs of like, you can even describe, like just pieces of gold, right? Yeah. So usually what was happening at the time is people were buying gold because gold was very cheap in Soviet Union, but it was quite expensive in the West. So people were buying gold and taking it to Poland and Romania and selling it, buying dollars, going back to Soviet Union, buying gold, going back. You know, there was a business like that. Anyway, it was they had a lot of gold, like I don't know, 50 gram, 100 gram, I don't know. And also it had scales, like very small portable scales, which tells me this was a drug dealer, you know, um, or maybe he was buying gold. I don't know. Sure. It was full of cash. And um, so we decided with my friend to split it, even though I found it because he was a very close friend of mine. Right. We decided to split it 50-50. And that was, as I said, that was the beginning of the end of my career. So we had all this cash. And uh, if you read my book, you would probably get an idea that I was not, even though without boasting, you know, I was a talented writer, right? I, I won the world championship. I was considered uh, like having a big future in cycling. Right. But as a person, I was not <laughs> really committed. I was committed when I needed to. But generally speaking, I was like a bad boy, you know, like what's usually known as a bad boy. So I, I like to party. I like to break discipline and I was punished so many times. I was disciplined so many times. And eventually this money didn't do me any good because I went on a very long uh, party uh, streak. Yeah. And it would not end. And it ended eventually in me being fired from, from my team, which ended my career. Yeah. Which prompted me to to leave the Soviet Union. So I was fired. I went into, continued to spiral down, was alcohol, drugs. I was, I was trying to literally kill myself because my career had finished. I had nothing to yeah. do. I had this money. I was still paid by the government. They forgot to cancel my salary. 
and then eventually I managed to get out and reboot my life, so to speak. So that's one, one crazy idea. And as part of this part of this um, incident with money, I was also almost shot once. Um, Again, because we had so much money with my friend. Once we came back to Kiev after this race, we continued partying, you know, like it was non-stop. Yeah. So we went to um, this bar and I knew the bar, like the, not the owner, it was not privately owned, but the guy who ran the bar, I knew him from previous times. Like he was my, not a friend, but someone I knew very well. And he allowed us, because we were spending so much money, he allowed us to stay after the bar was closed. Like it was closed at two o'clock in the morning, something like that. But because we were kept buying alcohol and kept, kept drinking and we were friends, he said, you can stay as long as you like. So at about four o'clock, we decided to leave. And as we got outside, this is on outskirts of Kiev, like maybe 20 kilometers away from the outskirts of Kiev. So we were walking to uh, a highway where we were hoping to catch a car, not a taxi, just a car to get us back to the city to make it to six o'clock when the team would wake up. So we had to make it back to six o'clock. My goodness, wow. Yeah. So as we're walking back, we see this group of people, like three guys and a girl, and the girl being beaten up. So we're walking up and we hear the screaming and yelling, and this guy is just beating this woman. So we approach, and we were drunk, like completely drunk. So we approach these guys and going like, hey, what's going on? Leave, leave this girl alone. And this guy says, you know, you guys keep walking. And he calls us kids. And we were, this is 89, we were 23. I was 23, my friend was 21. So he calls us kids. And he just says, get the hell out of here. Yeah. And my friend, he is a tall guy, a tall, lean guy. He's like uh, six foot more, slightly. And we both grew up in this kind of neighborhoods where we do, would not take this lightly. You know, uh, when someone says, get the, hell, the, get the head, hell out of here, we would do the opposite. So this guy says, my friend says to this guy, what if we don't? And he told them something, I don't know. And my friend, he was like standing next to him. He immediately lands a punch into his face. And he's tall, as I said, and he's a strong guy. Yeah. So he punches this guy and the guy falls on the ground. And the fight begins, you know, the two of us and three of them. Yeah. But it was very short. like. Lots of street fires are really short, unlike what you see in the movies, you know, where they're smashing themselves. So we punched them a couple of times, they punched us, but the guy who, who got on the ground first, when my friend hit him, he fell on the ground. He was still on the ground. And then at some point, he pulls out a gun. He pulls out a gun, and also he pulls out what we call in Russia, Korochka. And Korochka is ID of a police officer. Oh! So he pulls out a gun and and also his ID as a police officer. So these guys turn out to be police. Okay. In, in 
civilian clothes. I mean, they were drunk. Yeah, they they had a party and they had an argument with this. I don't know who this girl. She actually ran away as soon as we started fighting. She took off. <laughs> okay, <laughs> smart girl. Yeah. So she took off, and this guy stands up and he puts a gun into my head, and he says, "Pray." And in in Russia, that means they 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 give you five seconds to sort it out with God. You know, pray means you you're going to die. In a few seconds. So he said, "Wow, okay." Pray. Uh, in the meantime, and obviously, uh, I don't even know what to think. I pretty much shocked and think this is it. You know, the the end is had had arrived. But the other guys, his friends, started yelling at him, basically saying. Uh, don't do it because it's going to be a mess. You know, you don't want to have this kind of mess on your on your hands. I'm like, like, what are you going to do with, with right. that guy right now? Right. Um, so we had a bit of a. You can read it in the book. It's in the book as well. Had a bit of a exchange of words, and um, they let us go. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah. Wow. So that's a couple of uh, crazy stories for you. Yeah, I have nothing like that. <laughs> nothing. Oh, man. Wow. Wow. Um, well, Nikolai, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. And we've had, you know, discussion uh, before this. I've been you know, um, reading more of your work. I'll, I'll put links um, to it, including, you know, the Renegade, a memoir of a Soviet uh, cyclist. And uh, I, I, I'm so, um, you know, enthralled by, by what, uh, you know, the, the stories, the experience that, that you've shared. And I remember when I initially contacted you, I, I thought this would solely be about, you know, being in Kiev and, and seeing the buses and, you know, led over the buses and this whole experience. And, and that was, that was part of it. That was an introduction. And then all of a sudden it was this bigger picture of looking at the, um, access to information and 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 the way that um, uh, state information what was starting to to uh, also have this this private information that was coming out these private newspapers and, and how you process all this information I'm like oh my god there's this whole other story here that I had no idea about and just so much more um, but I I again I'm a fan of your work and I, I love biking by the way so you know we both we we both are bicyclists. I'm I'm a very casual <laughs> bicycle. I'm not a. Uh, oh, I mean, never... <laughs> I've seen your uh, report on Twitter. You know, sixty miles. I don't do sixty miles at the moment. So you. Yeah. Well, I, I I do I I go for distance, um, but I don't go for for speed. speed. But we have a lot of we have a lot of country around here, a countryside and actually I get to bike past, get this, I get to bike past 1000-year-old Native American effigy mounds that are shaped like bears and birds. Um the some of the routes that I take go right past those. Where I live, this is the most dense area in uh, North America for effigy mounds. So, I it's very regular to go past these ancient well, you know, thousand year old plus. Um, actually, in my city, uh, it, it dates back one of you know one of the paths between two rivers goes back ten thousand years. Um, 
So it's it's pretty fascinating when I'm out. I get to do, I get to take this in and, and we have a lot of sandhill cranes. So they're just, it's kind of a novelty in my area because I grew up in the Northern part of Wisconsin and, and we didn't have sandhill cranes. So there's big sandhill cranes uh, kind of walking around near out, out in the country, their fields and stuff like that. Obviously cows, deer, eagles, stuff like that. Nicola, again, thank you so much for being a guest on, on the safety doc podcast and wishing you uh, the, the very best you and your family in Australia and, and we'll keep in touch. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was great. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotti. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.